Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the future of the gerrymander. And Richard, the Supreme Court has recently announced that it's taking up a case out of Wisconsin challenging uh, redistricting in that state for being excessively partisan. Now, we have seen the court get involved, in fact, even in this current session, on cases that involve racial representation in redistricting, but they have never uh, in recent history given us any ruling uh, that has rendered voting districts unconstitutional on the basis of the partisan sorting. So take us through the legal argument here. What's the constitutional claim against a system that can be argued to be too partisan? Well, the first thing we have to do is to figure out what the claim was with respect to the race cases. And in this particular circumstance, the Equal Protection Clause is a pretty natural home for bringing those cases because it's widely assumed that racial disparities are the first thing that the Equal Protection Clause is about. And so if it turns out that you have a system in which minorities are underrepresented in a systematic fashion, people are going to be excited about it. It's actually a little bit more difficult than even that uh, because you have this great problem about lumpiness in voting. So if you had a uniform map in which every district had 60% Democrats and 40% Republicans, uh, what would happen is the Democrats would sweep the boards. And people would say, what about the other 40%? On the race question, suppose it turns out that you have a situation where uh, black citizens say perhaps at 25% of every district, they can lose every election and have no representative. So what they did is they concocted something known as a majority-minority district uh, using grotesque uh, geographical formulations so as to make it pretty likely that at least some districts would have black representations and then other districts would necessarily be more conservative. So what you do is you get kind of a split in which on the one side you get very liberal districts and on the other side very conservative districts because the middle guys get squeezed out. And this is actually a serious problem uh, for two reasons. One, if the race is the basis of which this is done, partisan gerrymandering having nothing to do with race it always gets you a much lower level of scrutiny. And one of the interesting things about this whole claim is nobody's sort of exactly clear what the constitutional basis of this stuff is. It's pretty clear that much of this discrimination turns out to be um, intentional, but the line on which it takes place, partisanship, is not a suspect classification under the law, uh, so the equal protection home is not naturally there. And so what they're trying to do in this particular case, that is the plaintiffs bringing the challenge, is to take a very egregious situation like the one you could find in Wisconsin and then argue we don't have to really worry about how far the law is going to go. We just have to start down the journey in this case and if we find the pronounced level of discrimination, realize that it was an artifact of Republican power within the state, uh, we can strike that down or to some kind of a redistricting to take place uh, which uh, – conforms to more more sensible norms. The obvious difficulty of this situation is who's going to do the next round of redistricting and exactly how exact can you make this work. So there are many moving parts in this situation. And the one point I just finished with right now is when they granted certiorari, five, the conservative five justices, uh, essentially put a stay on the decision of the Wisconsin, or the lower courts involved in this case. So it's not going to go into effect immediately until the Supreme Court has had it. And many 
many people think that's a sign that whatever the merits of the claim, uh, that you're going to get another one of these 5-4 decisions in which it turns out that the plaintiffs are going to be shown the door. So let's say that this case comes before a Justice Epstein. In your judgment, how strong is the case being made against the district in Wisconsin? Well, as I said, I, I think it's a kind of a split personality type situation. On the factual record, um, it's extremely strong as far as I'm concerned because what happens is uh, the basic notion here of the wasted vote is something which has been long understood by politicians and now uh, basically brought into framework by the uh, particular complaint. And so essentially, to give an example about this, Illinois, uh, many, many years ago, and I think it was 1980, you know, had to decide on who was going to draw the new map. And they got a 3-3 panel and they flipped a point to see who the fourth was going to be. And it was widely understood if the Democrats won, they would probably get four more seats out of this particular process than if the Republicans won. And here's how it simply works. What you want to do is to make sure that you win all of the close elections and that the other guy, when he wins, wins by a route but in fewer jurisdictions. So at the time in Illinois, it turns out the, sub the suburbs were red and the city itself was blue. And so so the Democratic map uh, would have a lot of districts which were about 45% suburb and 55% Democrat, and they thought that they could win virtually all of those districts by small votes. And there would be very few districts, mainly by the lakefront, which would be all Democratic. So I'm in, when I used to live in Hyde Park, I was in, I think it was the first district, and the typical you know, voting spread there was 92 to 8, or maybe 92 to 6, or whatever it is. And but you, So you can't get it all. The Republicans view was they would pack all the Democrats into the city and they would take the suburban areas and if anything do the reverse favor and have a few areas that were Democrat to neutralize them and then dominate the rest of the election. And the difference is four or five seats. Uh, so my view about this is how does this then relate to the question of one man, one vote? And this is what the great story is. Back in 1962 in a case called Baker v. Carr, uh, Justice Brennan came up with the notion that vote dilution was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, which gave rise to certain howls of protest by many people who thought accurately, historically at least, that the Equal Protection Clause had nothing to do with voting, right? And so what he said, one man, one vote. And that was a big stretch. But what he didn't tell us is which men or which people today, and which votes or what. So he only had numerical equality. He had no geographical boundaries built into the system, which is what allowed for the gerrymander. The gerrymander, Richard, is almost universally derided by good government advocates as an instrument of corruption. Uh, what do you make of states like California and Arizona that have tried to counteract it by taking the redistricting power out of the hands of lawmakers and forming citizens' commissions to do the redistricting? Well, I think they're right to take it out of the hands of lawmakers and they're wrong to put it in the hands of citizens' commission. Uh, the position that I've long taken on this issue is that what you want to do is to find the least of all evils on this. And anytime you give anybody discretion, uh, the only people who are going to be involved in this are folks who have a political agendas one way or another. Uh, so if you're going to try to do this in another way, uh, you may try to get one person to do it. There's a man named named Nate Persley, who's a distinguished law professor at Stanford, and he kind of goes around the country as an expert in this area, and he's so-called the neutral arbiter on many of these things, trying to take all this stuff into account. And that's probably better than a, a commission, but you know, one man can't take care of an entire country, and there's still a problem that even he could slip up from time to time. Uh, so the rival position is, we 
don't care about any of these subjective values, community, uh, ethnic boundaries of one kind or another, natural barriers like rivers and things of that sort. What we do is we just go for compactness. We start at the northeast corner of any particular state, and then what we try to do is to have districts whose area is basically large relative to its perimeter. And if you do that, it presents the 72-sided districts that you see in these majority-minority districts from taking place. And uh, you can get a map which is drawn by professional machines. It takes you a half an hour to do it. Uh, you could test it to see what happens if you go start in the northwest corner instead of the northeast corner. And that would get rid of the, um, of the gerrymandering. The difficulty with that today is it kills minority majority-minority districts. And one of the whole problems about this, which nobody has really addressed, is if you really want to do the good government wasted vote situation, are you going to basically eliminate those districts? And if you don't, how are you going to be able to run a system in which you've got two criteria, the wasted vote criteria on the one hand and the majority-minority districts on the other? So there's a lot of loose ends in this particular situation that's going to take a good deal of time to work out if the Supreme Court wants to go down this road. And one of the reasons, well, there are two reasons why it might not. One is they don't know the doctrinal home for the case. And secondly, they don't know what they're supposed to do once they find the violation. Uh, what's the next round? Who does the districting? What are the minimum requirements for fairness and so forth under these circumstances? So if they're dealing with those kinds of potential complications, why in your judgment do you think they agreed to take this case up? Because what happened is they might not have taken this case if it had come out the other way and they had simply said that these kinds of partisan gerrymandering cases are outside the scope of the Constitution because that would have been a restoration of the status quo ante. Uh, but the decision down below essentially held that the gerrymander was unconstitutional and there was a specific order to the Wisconsin legislature that they had to reform their behavior. This is a huge departure from previous practice. And I think the Supreme Court rightly said, if we're going to do this, we don't want to have it done in one state and not in another state with one legislature and not with another legislature. We've got to have a uniform national approach on this. And so they took it up themselves. They would not have taken this case, I suspect, if it had come out the other way. Uh, because, you know, when you want to talk about a briar patch, I don't mean Justice Breyer, I mean Br'er Rabbit. Um, <laughs> briar, if you want to talk about a briar patch under these circumstances, this turns out to be really it. There is no strong democratic theory which tells you how it is you translate different configurations of legislative majorities or legislative distributions of votes across territories, parties, ethnic groups, and so forth into a voting system. It's extremely difficult to do. And courts are generally unwilling to move into an area where they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But in this particular area, judicial passivity coupled with increased computer acumen by both parties, in effect means that the problem, if anything, is more serious today than it was 30 years ago because people can slice the apple even thinner than before. And the studies on this have indicated that the number of wasted votes that seems to be taking place under these applicable by criteria have increased in recent years. Uh, so what you do is you have a more acute type situation, and what happened is the lower courts handling this Wisconsin case offense essentially forced the hand of the United States Supreme Court. I would have voted to take the case as well, even though I'd be most unhappy at having to sit down and figure out how to decide it. 
There's lots of speculation amongst court watchers that Justice Kennedy is going to be the swing vote here yet again because they say that he seemed more open to intervening on this topic than the other conservative justices in the past, the, the ones who have considered it. Many of the newer ones haven't. What do you expect the dynamics on the court to be? Well, first of all, one new dynamic is Neil Gorsuch, and nobody knows exactly how on big cases he's going to interact with his colleague or what his particular instincts are going to be. And so there's a question mark, which I don't think would have been there if there had been Scalia still alive and on the court. The fact that he was one of the five who voted to stay the Wisconsin action suggests that he's probably going to align himself with the conservative side, and indeed his general voting record has been pretty consistently conservative, not, you know, outrageously so. He's just more conservative than the liberals. And, you know, so he's likely to join in with them. But Kennedy, in a case involving this issue in about 2006, uh, it was brought by a league of Latin American voters protesting this situation. He sort of dropped a hint in a concurrence, I think it was, saying, well, maybe this thing isn't so crazy after all. And and one of the real um, sort of occupational hazards of being a court watcher is you tend to read more into casual remarks of that sort made a dozen years ago mm-hmm. than is perhaps prudent. I would think if I had to predict the guess and, and, and give you an estimate on the vote, the number that came into my head was that the uh, claimants are likely to win this with about 30% to 35% of the time, about a one-third chance of victory, because I think the inertia on the one hand, the difficulty of getting yourself a really good doctrinal homework, and the ambiguities about what the remedy is going to look like, not only in this case, but in the next more difficult case down the line, is going to make the five justices, the conservative justice, a bit more faint of heart uh, than the liberals, so that it will back off. But I, I do expect that this will be a 5-4 decision. And so, of course, we now know if it's 5-4, it must be Justice Kennedy time, right? He's the main man in the middle now. And um, I don't know which way he will go. My guess is he will vote with the conservatives on this, but I have no inside information. I think it's probably going to be one of the most important cases um, in the Supreme Court in a very long time. I don't think it's as important as Baker v. Carr, where the imbalances that you had in the voting districts in the Tennessee were a national scandal, and it was replicated anywhere else. So getting the one-person, one-vote rule in there made a huge advance, but it left a lot of unfinished business. And now, you know, it's 55 years later, there's a question as to whether or not the second shoe will drop. Um, My guess is they're not going to do it, but as I said, I'm not very confident about this. A lot's going to turn on how it's going to be argued. The plaintiffs, I think, are quite rightly looking for a narrow victory, hoping that a future line of cases might broaden it. And even amongst themselves, they have some uneasiness about how far it is that they want to go. I think they're right to try and bite up a small part of the apple and that they would be unwise to try and simply say that what happens is the court now has to take over the redistricting of every federal and every state legislator um, uh, in the forecoming years. Uh, They have no appetite for that. There aren't enough special masters in the United States to make this really easy. So my guess is that they will go slow if they decide to approve this case and more likely than not, they'll probably throw it back at which point the next rate will be a very powerful set of political reactions in different states to try to reverse the rules uh, by political, not constitutional means. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.